0: that instead of book friends, we're going to start calling ourselves book chuckaboo.
1: Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Travel to a world lit by gas lamp. We hear the clip-clop of handsome cabs on paved roads, the shouts of young chimney sweeps and newsies shouting the day's happenings. We go to a world of bustles, top hats, a world of plumes of thick soot smoke pouring out from the warm chimneys and the factories. We go to a world with the novels, thick novels that you can read with a nice cup of tea as you look out onto the Thames. We go to a time of smoking jackets, of clubs, and of rampant sexism, racism, colonialism, and classism. Yes, welcome to the Victorian era. We travel here today with my book friends, Mark, Fiona, and Virginia, who I am Very thankful that they have indulged this childhood obsession of mine. When I was at a very young, impressionable age, I watched the Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes series and it changed my life. I wanted to be him. I wanted to wear his little like smoking jacket and his hat and tromp across the moors and solve crime and like leave people to die in quicksand because they were badens. I wanted to solve mysteries on those cobbled streets. I have been always interested in the Victorian era, which more or less corresponds to Queen Victoria's reign from 1837 to 1901. I think it's an interesting era for literature in that it was kind of the era that the English novel was popularized. And when we read a Victorian novel, it's in a format and with a psychology that we do kind of recognize. Unlike Jane Austen, where it feels somewhat stilted and a little distant, with a Victorian novel, there is dialogue. Sorry, I'm very excited about that. Dialogue and plot and a lot of the genres were codified for the first time kind of like in English novels, like the the detective novel, uh, the drama, uh, family saga, children's literature, science fiction. They were all made popular and popularized in this particular area. So it's a particularly rich area if you're interested in kind of the study of, of old novels. But it is also an age that is an age of colonialism. It is the age where many of the social ills that were created by the Victorian people were never discussed. They're never talked about. There is this idea of the Garden of England in literature, this kind of perfect civilized people that never existed. It's it's not real. When you read the novels of Victorian England, or some of them said in there, you you wouldn't find a person of colour in them, and yet they were there. They were there and they had always been there, and yet they don't exist in the literature and their voices are never there which I think makes it a really interesting era for modern authors to kind of go back and use this setting and use this time to kind of bring to light more of those voices and more of those stories that were simply cut out of it. Yeah, it's an it's an era and a particular time that kind of exists and and is able to be because of the exploitation and suffering of millions of people, and yet you never see it in the literature. So, for example, if you think about the works of Jane Austen, who's technically Regency, yes, I will take that hit. Thank you. I know she's a Regency author. But all of the money from her rich protagonists, like Mr. Darcy and Mr. Bingley, from all that new money, all that money is coming from the sugar plantations all of that money is coming from and because of the labor of enslaved people and yet again there's that kind of veneer and the idea of this kind of this this civilization when in fact they were it is born out of that kind of suffering and the most inhumanity that you can think of um, even within their own country, if you think about the powers of industrialization, the destruction of the environment, the exploitation of workers and of children. Uh, if you read through some of the historical records, the number of children who died in factory accidents in mining accidents, who had no education um, is heartbreaking. so it's it's an era and a particular like time that is so has so much dichotomy in it. It is a world of paradoxes, which I think make it really interesting again, for modern people to come in and reinterpret or re-examine that particular time. So I am so excited to see what my book friends have have decided to explore in this particular time. Again, there is so much. There's a detective novel. There is uh, science fiction. Um, authors have taken this particular era and they have done so much with it. You could put zombies in it. You could put werewolves in it. You can do whatever you want. So Fiona, where in the Victorian era did you land and what story is yours? An interesting question,
2: Corrine, because I actually struggled with this one a lot. Yeah, I was looking for something that that would maybe uh, be a little bit more critical of the Victorian era. So I did start with reading an antebellum novel, but then I felt like I might be cheating a little bit because it was in the Americas. Um, and it's definitely one I'm going to come back to because it was a really good book. But ironically, I have gone with a very safe pick for today that discusses none of those issues. Um, uh, but nonetheless is is a pleasant and comforting read. I am late to the party with this one. I have read The Essex Serpent by Sarah Perry. I think this book made a bit of a stir when it came out in 2016, but the reason I remembered it is because of its cover. If you put that kind of like gold with green for me, it just draws my eye, and I just specifically remember this cover and did not know about its contents. Till I picked it up. I know that Virginia has talked about Sarah Perry's other book, Melmoth, and came before that. And it is about largely about Cora born, who has recently been widowed. Some of her friends expect her to be in mourning about this, but it's actually a relief for her. Uh, she's getting out of an abusive relationship and is kind of finally finding the the freedom and self. That she has longed for. Cora is joined by a large group of characters, and it is a book that follows many of those characters. So, in that style of book, I often find that there will be parts that you love and parts that you kind of just slog through. This was a long read for me. I read it over a large period of time because I would occasionally get bored of it, and then I would get really into it and read a whole bunch, and then put it down for a while, and then read a whole bunch. So I am definitely amicable uh, to that sort of read, but others may not be. So uh, with Cora, we also have Martha, who is uh, my favorite character. She is definitely of a lower class than Cora, but she is her constant companion and is definitely less less warm and less approachable from Cora. And what she really cares about is housing reform. Um, so I loved that about Martha. And it was a very interesting look into the Victorian time and housing in Victorian time. So that was a subplot that was very nice for me. We also have Luke Garrett, also known as the Imp. He is a surgeon and he is in love with Cora and he's just waiting for the right moment to tell her. And Cora thinks of Luke as a dear, dear friend, but also sort of, um, I don't. She like. I don't know what the, if the word is like objectify, but like she's sort of like a lot of her friends. She very much like you know. Oh, he's the imp. He's he's this important role in my in my life rather than like really seeing people as people. So he is a surgeon, and and that his storyline I found difficult because there's a lot of very descriptive episodes of his surgeries. So I didn't really take to that character that much. <laughs> But the main plot line actually follows Cora's relationship with a minister, and I'm only just realizing now that that's funny uh, for me, uh, who lives out in the boonies and he has a charming and beautiful, welcoming wife. He has some funny little children, uh, notably Joanna, who starts out leading all the the village children in seances, uh, and then by the end of the book has decided that she's going to be a doctor. I really enjoyed her a lot, and she has a nice relationship with Martha, so those were some of my favorite passages. But Cora and the Reverend meet in unfavorable circumstances. Each thinks the other is a tramp, and then lo and behold, they're introduced to each other again by mutual friends, and they kind of have this moment of just laughing and laughing, and nobody knows what's going on because they realize they've previously met. So, this all revolves around this lore in the town of this Essex serpent. So, this beast that the town people believe is coming as retribution for their sins. They believe it is the cause of everything bad that's going on. If a sheep goes missing, it's the Essex serpent. If somebody is sick, it's the Essex serpent. And the reverend, as a God-fearing man, hates this, and he just wants to wipe it out, out of everybody's psyche and wants them all to be more Christian. So his relationship with Korra actually develops along this sort of debate around the Essex Serpent, because although he doesn't like hearing about it, he actually, I think, finds it the the challenge that he gets from Korra to be very invigorating, if you will. So Korra kind of in this newfound finding of herself, decides that she's going to like be a, an amateur paleontologist and decides that she wants to look into re- what's really up with this Essex Serpent. So it's a very meandering story. London out to, to the small town, a large cast of characters, and the prose are, are really well done. So um, overall, just kind of an enjoyable, comforting read. It does, in many ways, revolve around an affair, which I found a little bit uh, frustrating. But again, those sort of some of those side plots um, kind of made up for that. And I feel like it's one of those ones where you're going to like identify with at least one character, but you may have to sort of sit through the rest. When I was reading this, I didn't actually realize that it was the Victorian era. I actually was like, like, I'm I'm definitely missed some cues. uh, And it might be because I was listening to it over such a long time. But I was like, oh, yeah, like this is definitely like 20th century. And they're just sort of like a little bit backwards because they're like out of the main center. Then I realized, no, this is the Victorian era. And I kind of was able to situate it. Like for me, um, Dickens is is the big association for me with the Victorian era and sort of situate it in that, which was quite interesting because it does have that sort of like storied characters of different classes. But definitely the telling is very different from something that would have been written in the Victorian times you know, mainly because it's it's more upfront about about the secrets and perversities of 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 people instead of sort of like yeah just just washing over those. So again, this is the Essex Serpent by Sarah Perry. A comforting and charming read. And I think now that it's been, I don't know, like seven years since it's been published, you can go into it with like with lowered expectations like I did and 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 just have it be an enjoyable comfort read oh also they made a prime version of it and and they cast claire danes as cora which frustrated me a lot because cora's like whole thing is that she like dresses like a man and she's like kind of like homely but is charming enough that like people like her anyway like oh yeah just like claire danes
1: yeah thank you (laughs) fiona for that 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 I think very accurate description of the Essex Serpent. Um, I love that you didn't didn't realize it was a Victorian set novel until much later. <laughs> Even though I think it's about like the beginnings of Darwinism and like everyone's struggling with that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um but yeah, that book is such, and maybe uh, Melmoth, which I think Virginia talked about on this podcast before, they're very, she's a very like slow burn writer, like slow,
2: slow burn. And I like the slow
3: burn. I do.
1: <laughs> yeah. So it's it's a perfect Fiona book. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Mark, what do you have in store for us?
3: Well, it's kind of interesting at the start that you mentioned some of the major social and political issues of the time, namely classism and the class system of Victorian England, as well as Sherlock Holmes. Because the work that I'm going to be talking about is a reimagining of the Sherlock Holmes universe titled Moriarty the Patriot. And this manga series is written by Ryosuke Takeuchi with art by Hikaru Miyoshi i'd never really heard of either of these writers or artists before but they have a little bit of past experience mostly doing adaptations of novels and other and anime that have been made into manga series so it's interesting that they did a remake of like the most famous victorian era novel perhaps at least arguably one of the most well-known in this alternative version of the sherlock holmes canon the story is told primarily from the perspective of william james moriarty one of the most well-known villains in Conan Doyle's stories, and while Sherlock Holmes does play a significant role in this series, the series, vast majority of the story is not told from Holmes's perspective, and this sort of facilitated a refashioning of Moriarty into a, a very different character. As it, we tell a tale of crime, inequality, and the rigid class structure of Victorian England and its empire, essentially the Moriarty character is still sort of like this famous kind of crime, Lord of crime kind of figure. But whereas in the original home stories, he was sort of like a self-serving, kind of calculating, kind of rationalist sort of person. Whereas in this version, he is very much almost, I don't want to say a Count of Monte Cristo type figure, but essentially he is helping the lower classes exact their revenge upon the nobles and the nobility, and to ultimately aims to break down the, the structure of Victorian England society altogether and sort of uh, bring about a restructuring of society. So our story begins when William and his biological brother, Louise, are orphans living in a parish church. They spend their days in each other's company and visiting libraries to gain an informal education and insight into English society because they are essentially the uh, stereotypical Dickensian children. They have no parents. They live in a church. They uh, live with like 20 other kids that the church sort of looks after under like as a kind of act of Christian charity, more or less. And they live there until they catch the eye of one of the volunteers at the church, the eldest son of the Moriarty family, Albert Moriarty, and are eventually taken into the Moriarty home after Albert convinces his parents to do this act of goodwill and charity towards others. But as we sort of find out that the remainder of the Moriarty family is actually not at all interested in the lower classes, they simply take them in as an act of kind of noblesse oblige, as it's known, sort of as a act of generosity on the part of nobles to show their social responsibility and spirit towards those beneath them. But the Moriarty family itself is actually quite rigid in their views. They endorse harsh laws and punishments against the lower classes against deviancy and degeneracy and all these other ills of society that they view are the responsibility and uh caused by the lower classes. As time goes by, Albert sort of becomes even more thoroughly disgusted with his family. He had hoped that taking in these two uh, orphans would sort of change their views on things, that they would grow as people, but that's not as how it's gone at all. Eventually, William and Louise propose a plan to Albert, that they are going to take control of their family by staging an accidental quote unquote, fire at the family home, resulting in the death of both the Moriarty parents, and Albert's biological brother, who is also named William. As part of this fire, the orphan brother William assumes the identity of the bio- the biological brother, uh, William, it's kind of confusing and it sort of plays on in the Original Conan Doyle stories, the identity of Moriarty is kind of confused a little bit. He uses different names to refer to different, the same person, sort of gets kind of muddled a little bit. And that's why in this story, they have the three Moriarty brothers, because there's different names and different personas that have been used in the past in some of the stories, as well as other adaptations of Holmes that sort of has this different structure to it. From here, we skip ahead 13 years with William, Louise, and Albert as adults. And William is now in his familiar position as a mathematics professor at the University of Durham. William is now the head of the family and along with his brothers have begun to devise plans to reveal the underhanded deeds of the nobility and upper classes through their own illegal and at times bloody methods to uncover the truth behind these people. As such, they view their actions as a kind of necessary evil due to the unwillingness or inability of those in positions of power to make real changes to the way english society is structured or to enforce or enact laws that place the lower classes on equal standing with the upper classes their plans often take the form of like very public and elaborate plans to have their targets reveal themselves or enact in a manner that exposes their secret misdeeds for instance when they moved to durham their neighboring land baron dublin who was responsible for the death of many people locally he served keeps his people living on his land in kind of indentured uh, servitude, almost feudal in a way, as you sort of see these vestiges of the way that the lower classes are kept in line on these farms and uh, estates. And William is approached by a man who would like him to assist him in bringing about the downfall of Baron Dublin, essentially, as this man whose child died after he tried to have Baron Dublin allow him to have a doctor visit his child to check on it. But Dublin refused because they do not have any money to pay for the doctor's services. So essentially, William devises a plan. He learns that Dublin is allergic to several types of food, and so he arranges a dinner with the Baron and intentionally induces anaphylactic shock in him. Essentially, extorts him into signing over some of his land to cancel the debts of those who live on his land and to enact more equitable like practices on his estate. Essentially, so this is the kind of like the kinds of plans that they sort of enact to try and assist those who have been wronged by the upper classes and to use means that aren't exactly legal, but they view it as a kind of necessary evil in order to bring about a more just relations between people. Eventually, they sort of begin to build a larger kind of organization that they refer to as the Lord of Crime. And they bring in sort of uh, more trusted confidants that may be familiar from the Holmes canon, such as the Colonel Sebastian Moran and Fred Pollock. So if you're familiar with the Holmes stories, you may recognize those names as people who are associated with Moriarty. The other key part of their plan is that while they may be able to bring about isolated kind of uh, incidents and things like that, but if the true motives behind their actions are not known, if the true nature of things that are going on are not brought to the public's light, they'll sort of remain isolated incidences that don't bring about any larger change. And to this end, they try to devise ways to become more publicly known for their actions to become publicized, essentially. For this to happen, they needed to have someone on the side of the law who has an unblemished record, the respect and admiration of the people, and will also side with the truth over protecting the reputation of the powerful or those in charge of them. And this person, of course, is none other than the renowned consulting detective Sherlock Holmes. And there are some chapters in this story that are told from the perspective of Holmes as he begins to sort of put together the pieces behind some of these individual cases and see how the pattern amongst this rising tide in high-profile crimes are actually related to one another. In this, the chapters that are told from Holmes' perspective, we also get to see some other the familiar characters, of course, like Dr. Watson, Miss Hudson, Sherlock's property owner, Irene Adler, the famous con artist who manages to trick Holmes himself, Sherlock's brother, Mycroft, And Holmes' contact in Scotland Yard, Inspector Lestrade. There's also some kind of playful incorporations of some real world and fictional figures from other works of literature. For instance, the Jack the Ripper killings are portrayed as the work of a cynical schemer looking to exploit the lower classes for their own ends that William and his company come into conflict with. For example, there's a refashioning of the famous Matt Damon, Will Hunting character in a single chapter as well. So there's these kind of like interesting little historical anachronisms that are thrown in as well. There's also a famous spy of a certain name that I'm not going to mention. But essentially, this is very much a pastiche of various historical and literary figures into one that they try to to use in a a sort of new way. If you're interested in a, a tale of crime, the underworld of England, political intrigue, or just the class system of England in general, then you may also enjoy Moriarty the Patriot. Or uh, you could sort of summarize this as saying, just do crime and eat the rich.
1: Sold, Mark, sold. (laughs) Absolutely. I love a new take on the Napoleon of crime. Um, I am, of course, obsessed with the Sherlock Holmes stories. And so that is is a very interesting take that I didn't think that Matt Damon would be making a... (laughs) cameo in but there you are um if you're interested in another manga that uh take place in victorian time uh, you could do no better than kauru mori's i'm gonna go with masterpiece emma the amount of research that she does is a staggering so maybe on like moriarty is more on the educational side if you're looking for kind of something that is very very grounded um and very well researched and you want kind of that visual definitely pick up emma it is incredible all right well We are going to take a bit, we're going to dip our toes into the world of Victoriana. We know that there are so many famous wordsmiths from the Victorian era, Dickens, Thackeray, my girls, the Brontes, but, you know, language changes, language evolves, and I want to ask all of my book friends what their favorite victorian slang is and to be fair i did share a list with them beforehand i did not expect them to just have it on the tip of their tongue somewhere of what their favorite victorian slang is so um victoria uh, victoria virginia uh victoria virginia what is your favorite victorian slang
0: that's funny because really that's why a lot of people call me victoria like if they can't think of virginia it's always victoria Always, in fact, there's some kids at the library that I think they think that my name is Victoria, and I've just answered to it and it's too late now to correct them. So, so if ever these kids come in to look for Victoria, it's me. Anyway, um, yeah, that list is amazing. This like mental floss list is great. Everybody should check it out. Before this episode, Fiona was talking about like, you know, there must be a word that we can bring back, and I think for me, there's so many good ones. But for me, I'm gonna go with enthusiasm. And it said it's a satirical reference to enthusiasm. And I feel like on the days when you're just like, like you just have enough of the world (laughs) and like, no, I don't need people to be so cheery and too cheerful. And you just want to like hide in your own little place. And I think that's a really great word to describe that it's just this really overly, you know, like enthusiastic and you're just like, no, not today. Um, So that would be
2: my word.
1: Fantastic! I think I definitely have some of that enthusiasm sometimes. All right, uh, Fiona, what about you? What is your favorite piece of Victorian slang?
2: Oh, they're all amazing. We should bring them all back. I wanted to pick one that I like could use, you know, regularly, but instead I'm going to go with "bags o' mystery," which is uh, referred is what you use to refer to a sausage. Um, So I'm thinking about quitting librarianship and opening up like little sausage.
1: a cart uh, called Fiona's Bags. Oh, mystery! Hear that, dragons! Get on it! Invest now! Invest early! All right, uh, Mark. What is your favorite piece of Victorian slang?
3: Uh, I'd have to echo that. There's so many great words on this list, but I think if I had to pick just one, it would probably be giggle mug, just essentially a habitually smiling face. That just combines two elements that just I would not normally put those two little words together, but When they go together, it just brings a smile to your face, doesn't it?
1: It does. It very, very does. Um, And again, so hard to choose, but mine is definitely one that I can see myself using a lot. And it is got the morbs, which means that you have descended into a temporary melancholy. So next time someone asks, oh, how are you doing? Oh, got the morbs, um, which I love.
0: Can I also advocate that instead of book friends, we're going to start calling ourselves book chuckaboo? Because Chugaboo is a nickname given to a close friend. So we should just call ourselves Book Chugaboos from now on. So back to you,
1: Book Chugaboo Corinne. Thanks, Virginia, for that make-a-stuffed-bird-laugh suggestion. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. All right, fantastic. Um, We are going to move on to another Victorian-inspired piece of literature that I'm sure is going to be absolutely banana pants. Um, So I turn it over to the queen of Banana Pants, Virginia.
0: Yes, I actually have chosen a book because I just want something Banana Pants, because I feel like it's been a while since I read something like just completely weird. And I remember browsing in the library and seeing this book on the shelf, never heard of it, never heard about the offer. And I'm like, huh, you know what? And then I really love the cover. So, But unlike Fiona, who loves the green and the very floral cover, this is the kind of cover that that attracts me. And I just really, really love, I, I think, and Corinne can correct me later, but I think these are like steel engravings, maybe? I don't know. Anyway, so I just really, really love that. And so, and then, you know, four colors still, right? So I thought like, you know, I'll pick this up and kind of something I remember. And um, it kind of reminded me of this set of books that is done by a British kids author called Philip Adar. He basically took like this before like the internet, everybody does it on the internet, but he basically took like these pictures that he found in these old books and he make up a new story from them, and they are like pretty hilarious. Um, so I just figure like, you know, it's time for something light, because there's have been a lot of cannibalism lately. So maybe I should just go with something like completely light and just funny. Um, so for anyone who is a Monty Python fan, for anybody who loves Woodhouse, you will enjoy this read. So this is The Gentleman by Forrest Leo. Lionel Savage is having a bad day. His wife, a newlywed, is having another one of those parties again in his house, bringing all kinds of people, bringing all kinds of noise. They're going to dance until dawn. It is just so annoying to him. And all he wants is to sit down and write his poetry. But he can't because ever since he married Vivian, He cannot write. He has sort of lost it. Every sentence that came out looks like garbage. He thinks back to why this awful thing has happened to him. And it was that one day when his butler, Simmons came into the room and announced to him that he's bankrupt. He has spent all the money on books. He does have a really good library, uh, but all the money is spent on books and now he has gone bankrupt. And so the first thing that came to Savage Mind was his dear sister, Lizzie, because right now he's paying for Lizzie's education. And it's really important that Lizzie gets what she wants. And so she's like, what should I do? What should I do? And he's starting to get really anxious about it. And of course, being a poet you know, he's realistic. He knows, even though he's mildly popular, he spoke does pretty well, but he knows that that's not going to be enough to cover all the costs. So what is a man to do? Well, I guess he would just have to marry himself into a rich family. And that is exactly what Savage did. So in a few months after a very short courtship, he married Vivian Lancaster from the Lancaster family, one of the wealthiest family that he knows. At first, the first time he met Vivian, he was smitten right away by her beauty. And not only that, he can tell right away that Vivian has really, really good taste. Because the first thing that came out of Vivian's mouth was when she defended him against his nemesis, Pandagast, who always liked to make fun of his poetry. But Vivian defended him. So clearly, she has extraordinary taste, especially in her reading. So it should be a happy, happy marriage. But for some reason, ever since they got married, even just that first wedding night, they just don't have anything to say to each other. And he doesn't know why. They don't spend any time together. They don't spend any days or nights together. His wife has moved into his sister's old room and he doesn't get it. And his wife doesn't love him. And he have to say, I don't really love her either. So what should I do? And not only that, of course, this whole idea that he can't write anymore really, really, really bugs him. So he is contemplating some extreme measures when the door to his room opens. He thought it might be Simmons, his butler. But no, it is a very mild, skinny man that he has never seen before. And Savage was just mad, like. And he said, like, "Hey, excuse me. The party is out there. This is a private room." And this guy got like even more like you know shy, and he's like, I- "I'm I'm really sorry, but sir, I just I just want to come in, and I hope it's okay if I intrude because I just want to thank you, sir." And Savage was like, "I don't know you, like." What do you mean you thanked me? Oh, you know, this afternoon when you defended me, not many people would do that. So I'm just like deeply indebted to you. And Savage is like, what are you talking about? And so the gentleman starts to explain some more and say, you know, this afternoon, remember when you saw the priest and he tripped and he fell on the floor and he started cursing the devil and you're like, oh, if it weren't for the devil, you and I would be out of a job. Remember that? Thank you so much for defending me. Again, I'm so misunderstood. People won't often do that. As Savage started to process those words, he's like, wait, are you saying you're the devil? What? And then these gentlemen start go and say, "Hey, how come you're not all in the party?" And Savage is just like, "Oh gosh, like I hate parties." And he started unloading all his woes and all his mysteries to this stranger that he has never met before. That is saying that he's the devil, and keep trying to explain like you know what happened to him and and how this marriage is just not working out, and it's just like how horrible his life is now, and. It turns out that the devil is a very, very good listener, and that he's just so sympathetic, and like he's just making all the right noises. And he's like, "Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. That must be awful to for you, and it's just unfair." But you know what? Like, don't worry. Like, I, I'm sure things will get better. And that so was just like, "Wow!" Like, this is kind of amazing. And the devil was like, "You know what? Do you mind? Like, I mean, like, you know, I feel like you and I could be friends. You know, maybe we should get together sometime." Um, and And he's like, yeah, of course, absolutely. And he liked this stranger so much that he even willingly lent him his copy of Tennyson because, like, the devil apparently has never read Tennyson before. But yet, he finds out that the devil's gardener is actually Dante. So he was just very, very excited about all of this. And so this gentleman was like, oh yeah, thank you so much. You know, like again, thank you for you. Like I, I won't bug you anymore, but like, you know, I should go back to the party. And then Savage was, you know, he closed the door and Savage was like, that was just weird. Like what is going on? Like, is that guy really the devil or is it just a prank? Probably played by Pandagas, because that sounds like something that Pandagas would do just to make fun of me. But then as he's trying to figure out like what happened, Simmons came into the room and it's like, sir, sir, I'm so sorry, but your wife has disappeared. One moment he's there and then like, poof, she just like disappeared. It's like she got carried away by the devil or something. Savage so start thinking, oh, 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 have I like accidentally traded my wife away? Oh, my God. Happen. So as she starts thinking about it, he's like, you know what? I I need to get my wife back. So the rest of the story is about him trying to gather up a group of people that will bring his wife back from hell and, of course, try to figure out where hell is. And this group will include his sister, Lizzie, who got kicked out of school after all because of a dalliance with the dean's son. And then there's Ashley Lancaster, the brother of Vivian, who is like this like handsome explorer that Everybody loves And he just sees this As another grand adventure That he can lead This expedition into hell And then there's An aeronaut, Will Who is like Gonna design something That might help them Get to hell And also like A bookstore owner And of course Simmons, the butler Who is obviously In charge of everything here um, So this is uh, The Gentleman By Forrest Leo The full title is Being a truthful account Concerning the hazards of love Marriage duels Poetry, inventors Family Anarchists, airships Intercourse with the devil, ladies' undergarments, painting from life, the history of exploration, etc, set down by Mr. Lionel Lupus Savage and edited with objections by Mr. Herbert Lancaster, Esq., containing nothing either allegorical or metaphorical or and never deviating from the truth. So the whole story is just a fun kind of comedy of errors, a drawing room comedy type kind of story with a lot of footnotes by Herbert, the cousin by marriage who is going to tell you like, because wow. like, the, the story is told from Lionel's, uh sort of point of view um, and it's his account of what he thinks happened and of course Herbert is like taking every opportunity to tell you that that's not true or like you know give you like the truth of what actually happened or just you know like maybe just question a little bit of what Lino said about himself especially um, so a really really fun adventure in chi just plain silly and this is originally apparently a play and I could totally see that as a play for him. and it, I think it would be a really fun play because it just got like like really good dialogue. So yeah, a delightful absurd tale. If you just want to have something fun, this is The Gentleman by Forrest Leo.
1: Banana pants indeed, Virginia. And again, what were your options before divorce was legal? Like you could either murder your spouse and or sell them to the devil for a book of poetry. not sure who got the better deal all right well uh as our last book i am going to kind of go back to my roots of my my lifelong uh, obsession with jeremy brett's sherlock holmes my man of course i have read his autobiography you bend the willow you don't break it but i i decided to go with surprise surprise a ya book yeah I know. Um, A YA historical mystery by Fiona. Make sure you're not holding anything hot. A Canadian author? I know. I know. But I wanted to get back to those cobblestones, so I I chose a book that I read a long time ago. It's part of a four-book series that I thought was really, really good and kind of... Kind of flew under the radar in a little way, but it's it's got a really good base. Um, The author herself has a PhD in Victorian literature, so she knows what she's talking about. And it starts with young twelve year old Mary Quinn is about to be hung at the gallows. She is an orphan, and with no family in the eighteen fifties, she has little option but to turn to a life of crime. Unfortunately, little Mary is not good at it. She attempts some pickpocket. Pocketry and light thieving is immediately caught and sent to the jail. And because we are talking about a time in which the idea of capital punishment was palatable and uh, preferred, even though she is 12 years old, she is considered adult enough to take an adult sentence. She is about to meet her maker when she is provided an alternate means at redemption. She can either go to the gallows or she can go to Miss Scrimshaw's Academy for Girls. Seeing that a bustle is better than a noose, she takes the assignment and finds herself being trained not only in decorum, manners, and light mathematics to be a governess, but also being trained to be a private investigator. This girl's school is merely a front for the agency, the brainchild of two women who realize that the best private investigators, the ones who are able to uncover all of your secrets, are the ones who can move about your household unseen and undetected. And who better to be as noticed as a piece of furniture than a governess? Mary is trained in all of these arts until she is 17 years old and receives her first assignment. She is being sent to the home of a wealthy industrialist, Thorold, who is suspected of trafficking some antiquities and jewels from India into England without paying the proper taxes or duties. As she arrives there, she meets his sickly wife and his spoiled, quite awful young daughter, Angelica, And the young man who is courting her, James Easton. Now, for most of your private investigators like Sherlock Holmes, unless you are going undercover and deluding a poor maid into thinking that you're marrying her and then just dropping her at the last sentence, yes, it's inexcusable. Never forget. Mary is in a fair amount of danger. Not only does she have to complete all of her jobs as a governess and a domestic, but she also has to live in the same house and space as the people that she is investigating, all of whom have secrets, all of whom are willing to go to dire ends in order to protect those secrets. So this is the first book in the Agency series by Y.S. Lee, a Singaporean-Canadian author. The first book is called A Spy in the House. Y.S. Lee has a PhD in Victorian literature, so she knows her stuff. You are immediately assaulted with the, definitely the smells... Oh, the smells, the sounds, and the sights of Victorian London in the 1850s and 1860s. She has done copious amounts of research into the lives of This kind of like half-life of domestic servants, especially governesses, who were educated and well-off enough to kind of be considered a household, but they were also staff or servants, so they were also downstairs. So they're kind of trapped between that upstairs-downstairs world that Y.S. Lee does so well. What I really enjoy about this is that, again, Y.S. Lee is plumbing into that depth of what we consider kind of like the lily-white world of Victorian England and delves into the history of the Lascars, who for all intents and purposes, were non-European soldiers or militiamen who uh, sailed in the British Navy and some of whom settled and lived in London and in England for a very, very long time since the 1600s. So she really delves into that history, into Mary's history, and Again, it's a really complex, wonderful story. It's a very good character study. The mystery is kind of slight, but that's okay. That's okay. It's the first book in a series, and there's only three suspects, so it's got to be one of them. So you have a 33.3% chance of being correct, which I was, which I find very satisfying because it means that the author has done their job. So if you are looking for a little trip into Victorian England, into kind of a character study of what it meant to be a young woman alone in the world of Victorian London, if you're looking to learn a little bit more history, if you're looking to kind of be immersed, um, then you should definitely check out Y.S. Lee's series, starting with A Spy in the House. So, I would like to thank all of my book friends for indulging me on this ah, this trip back into my childhood. I hope that you all enjoyed your stay except for of course uh oh my gosh, Virginia's stories wife who I assume has a bad time in hell, but maybe not. Maybe it's a party. Who knows? And so these are just some of the fantastic stories being written about this particular time period. And we hope that you make the journey again. Happy reading, everyone. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional.